This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Welcome to In Legal Terms, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. I hope your week is off to a good start and uh, that you don't get too hot today. Uh, you know, we're moving to fall, um, but it doesn't not, feel yet. Like fall. not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but um, but we got a great show, and so people can be in their air-conditioned cars or their houses listening to um, our two wonderful attorneys who are joining us today, Matthew Eichelberger and Jenny Eichelberger. And uh, Matt and Jenny, it's always a pleasure to have, have you on the show. Um, and today we're going to be talking about subpoenas and grand juries, but your firm uh, does a lot of different things. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and, and your practice? Sure, Jenny, you wanna go first? Yeah, yeah, for sure. that's great. Sure, we practice together at the Eichelberger Law Firm in Jackson. Um, and I am actually originally from Virginia. I'm not a Mississippian originally, but um, I call myself an official transplant. Um, and now I've been here for almost 20 years. Um, so we, our firm practices in a couple different areas. Um, we focus on criminal defense, also civil rights litigation, um, and we handle personal injuries and workers' compensation as well. So both civil and criminal. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Clinton. Um, I went to Clinton High School, went to Mississippi College for undergrad and Ole Miss for law school and um, have been here most of my career. I practiced in Texas for just a little bit, for a couple of years. I still maintain a Texas license and have cases active in Texas, but most of my practice is, is here in Mississippi. Um, while Jenny focuses on civil, excuse me, on the uh, workers' comp and personal injury part of our firm, I handle the criminal defense and civil rights cases, and Jenny will kind of back me up on those, and our associate, Madeline Isles, um, kind of is a utility fielder. She goes and, and helps out on all the cases. So that's kind of how we uh, handle things here at the firm and look forward to talking with you today about grand juries and subpoenas. Well, we're, we're glad you're doing that. And uh, let's talk generally about subpoenas first. I mean, what exactly are subpoenas? So a subpoena is a command from the court that you deliver, or excuse me, appear at a certain time at a certain place to give testimony in an action. Might be a criminal matter, might be a civil matter, could be an administrative matter, um, but nonetheless, you have to be there. And it actually, I guess it comes from the Latin, really means under punishment or under penalty, you know, and, and Latin plays some role in, in our law. And so how is a subpoena different from a different type of subpoena, subpoena ducas tecum? Um, well, a subpoena in Ducas Tecum is when you need to appear as commanded by the court, but also you're going to be producing something, producing documents, bringing documents with you. Um, and you also see those, you see those in civil cases as well, where maybe you're not appearing to the court, but you're appearing at uh, proceeding like a deposition. 
And, and so if somebody gets, receives a subpoena, does that mean they're under arrest? Does that mean they're uh, being sued? Does that mean, you know, what exactly does it mean when I get a subpoena? It does not necessarily mean you are under arrest or even under any sort of investigation. Um, sometimes subpoenas are issued to what we will call a third party. So, for instance, um, I was in a matter just the other day. I was in a hearing last Friday over um, subpoenas that were issued to banks that our office had issued to banks in a criminal matter for them to produce certain documents. Um, they're not in any trouble. Uh, and just if, if you get a subpoena and you're not the target of any sort of investigation, that doesn't mean that you are in trouble or have done anything wrong. Well, I have a question, and I won't tell you what I did in case I did something wrong. But, uh, you know, my name and my maiden name were not unique. I'm, I'm not an Eichelberger. And I one time got a subpoena for someone, and they had a middle initial, but it wasn't even my middle initial, and I didn't have anything to do with it. What happens if you get a subpoena and they give it to you, but it's really not for you? Well, Liz, your secret is safe with us. We're not going to turn you in anybody. It's okay. Um, but so if that does happen, then you need to contact the attorney that requested that subpoena be issued. So let's talk real quick about how a subpoena is issued. An attorney will write it up. They'll draft it, and then they will send it to the clerk of court for issuance, meaning the clerk stamps it and makes it official and sends it out. Now, if that happens and you got a subpoena for the wrong person, that attorney needs to know so that they're not looking to you for any sort of appearance or documents and that they can go correct their mistake. Because believe it or not, we make mistakes and we make them often. Do, do a lot of people, I mean, I, that's, I'm one person and got a wrong subpoena one time. Is this plentiful? Do this happen a lot? Or is this like a rare thing? Uh, it's it's probably a little more common than you'd like to think. Um, again, we're people, and sometimes we just get bad information from other people. Oh well, and, no, I meant just about subpoenas in 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 general. Is it is that is this a special unicorn that the court uses, or do subpoenas no. go out every day willy nilly? Every day, all the time, all the time. In most cases or a lot of cases, you're going to have subpoenas, and um, whether it be a criminal case or a civil case. And like we mentioned earlier, it can be something as simple as a deposition. Um, in civil cases, depositions happen in almost every case. And um, at that deposition, um, sometimes, especially if it's a deposition of a, a corporate individual, someone that works for the corporation, there may be documents, um, corporate documents that you need to ask that individual about. So in that case, that's one of the instances you would have a subpoena to the people. So they happen very, very frequently, I would say. How are they served? I mean, can it, it can, uh, can we serve, uh, you know, like I know in person, probably the best way, right? A person takes it, but what if they're not going to take it? How, how do you serve a subpoena on somebody? I typically do it in person. In my cases, I'll, I'll send a process server out to do it. Um, Jenny, I think you probably have a little bit more experience in serving them in civil matters in other ways. In, in my cases, I will oftentimes be looking for somebody that's not necessarily easy to find. And so I'll use a process server. But Jenny, I think you may have some other ways. 
I do. And a lot of times we do use process servers. If it's something that you have a witness that you want to make sure they appear at a hearing or a deposition, then it's the rule of thumb is to do it um, by service in person, because that way, you know, they've been served. You have someone that can confirm they've been served just in case they don't show up. However, if it is um, like we talked about a deposition and it may be just a representative that's been designated by a company, then you, you can send that via their attorney sometimes. Sometimes if they already have an attorney, they will agree to accept service so you don't have to go through um, the process of having someone deliver it to them in person. So it's not a scary thing. It happens all the time. It's not a big deal, but it is an important deal folks need to follow through on if you do get one, correct? That's right. That's right. You can send us your email questions to our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing grand juries and subpoenas with our guests, attorneys Matthew Eichelberger and Jenny Eichelberger. Do you know what national holiday it is today? And I've got holiday quotation marks, but this is radio, so only Jay and Charles and my Zoom people can see that I did that. I'm going to tell you what holiday it is next. Now, not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live, so if you have missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. I know you've all been waiting to know what holiday it is. Today is National Voter Registration Day. So October 10th is the last day you can register to vote for, get registered so that you can vote for the November 8th election. So check out the Secretary of State's website or uh, to, to register. You can also update your voter registration information there. You know, there are laws and they're made by us, but you can't make the laws if you're not registered to vote. So try to get, remember to do that on today's National Voter Registration Day. And we'll be giving out a little, little more holiday tidbits about that uh, as the show goes on. But this morning, we are talking about grand juries and subpoenas with our guests' attorneys, Matthew Eichelberger and Jenny Eichelberger. We have a call. Let's go to Roger in Florence. Roger, we're glad you've joined us today. What's your comment or question? Well, when I was a uh, state court trial judge, I was surprised at uh, some attorneys who didn't learn in law school or didn't bother to look up statutes about subpoenas. And uh, I'd like for the uh, speaker to, uh, and by the way, thank you for what you're doing. This is a great show. Uh, the uh, To talk about the provisions, and they're not much, but the provisions for uh, compensating people for the costs of travel or whatever that's needed for uh, responding to a subpoena or subpoena dues to take them. And also to later, maybe, if you think it's appropriate, comment on any, on any differences between state and, and uh, federal court practice on that. Because I think it was very interesting uh, revealing that, I mean, frankly, some attorneys don't, don't know those things. And so the public is not well served. You are uh, serving the public well, and I thank you again. I'll listen. 
Thanks, Roger. We appreciate you calling in. Matt, uh, I live in Jackson, so if I get a subpoena here, you know, I can just drive down the street. But what if somebody in Olive Branch subpoenas me? So if you are subpoenaed from out of town, first off, let's let's talk with the federal court. We'll address that first, and then I'll let Jenny take state court. But in federal court, you have to tender with the actual subpoena a $25 fee, a witness fee, and the cost of transportation and the cost of complying with the subpoena. So under Rule 17 in federal court, uh, excuse me, federal criminal matters, you have to do that, and then in civil matters, you do as well. So uh, in, in that can be somewhat costly. It can it can get up there in, in price if you've got to have somebody travel from Jackson to Olive Branch or from the coast to Olive Branch or vice versa. Um, so, yeah, that protection is there, and it can be the basis for what we call a motion to quash. If a party receives a subpoena, let's say, Liz, you've got a subpoena, and it says you've got to show up next week in Olive Branch, and you can't be in Olive Branch for various reasons. You can file through your attorney or Pro se by yourself, you can file a motion to quash, saying that uh, for some reason this subpoena doesn't conform to the rules. The lawyer didn't provide a witness fee or transportation money for that, um, or it just is in some other way not going to work for you. Like you, you've got a travel schedule that's already set. Um, that being said, you can't just get out of it because you don't feel like going, or because gosh, my boss might be mad at me at work. Um, there have to be some valid grounds for that motion to quash. Uh, but at the state, I mean, excuse me, at the federal level, yes, there are those protections in there. Jenny, do you want to take state level? Yes, the state level is similar. I mean, there, there are the witness fees and mileage rates as well. And like we said earlier, I practice a lot in, in the workers' comp arena, and that is um, that is similar in workers' comp as well. Um, there is a fee, and I believe it's $25 right now, and then the mileage rate. And the mileage rate, rate fluctuates based on, on what the mileage rate is, is for that year, which just varies a little bit for year to year. But you do have to issue that and re- issue reimbursement for mileage as well. The point is not for it to be a hardship on the person, especially if they're having to travel, like, like Matt said. Well, fantastic. Yeah. So if, I was going to add, if I could, um, at state, I believe it's 20, in federal court, it's $40 per day plus miles. Neither one of them are great, if you think about it. They probably need to increase those because if I had to give up a day of my life for $40 or for $25, that's not going to be sufficient, and it's probably not for just about anybody. So, legislature, if you're listening... Yeah, I often think the legislature, whenever they pass any kind of bills that has any kind of fees or compensation, it should be tied to some consumer price index. But that's a whole nother in legal terms show that we would need to to get on to. But so, you know, Jenny, suppose I get this subpoena to go to Olive Branch, but I don't do anything about it. And I just kind of leave it in my mailbox, in my purse, or, you know, I, I shoved it in the glove box of the car and didn't do anything about it. What's going to happen? Like we said earlier, a subpoena is a court document. It's actually a writ issued by the court. So it is a mandate to appear at the court or at the proceeding. So if you don't, it is violation of a court order. And the judge can bring you before um, the court to answer why you weren't there to be held in contempt um and, and you don't want to do that 
Um, you never want to get on the bad side of the judge or risk any kind of penalty. So really, it's something you really should not ignore. Um, and like Matt said, if there is a problem with the subpoena, you would contact um, the attorney that issued it. Or likewise, if you if you get a subpoena and you truly could not be there, if you're out of the country or something uh, along those lines, or I'm going to be out of town or, or whatnot, you need to contact that attorney that issued the subpoena. Um, immediately because it is a directive to it to appear and uh, thank you for that answer by the way thanks roger for calling in and uh, you know what well, so let's say you know if i get a subpoena do i need a lawyer i'm going to subpoena for you know to be deposed in a case i'm not i'm not one of the parties uh i'm not a criminal defendant do i need a lawyer if i'm subpoenaed to be a witness so if you are not going to be a criminal defendant if they are not investigating you. And one way to tell um, is whether or not this is a grand jury subpoena or if it is a trial court subpoena um, or if it's a civil matter. If it's a civil matter, no, you're just a witness. Um, and think about your relation to the case. Let's say you saw a car wreck, for example. Um, in that case, no, you don't need a lawyer. Um, they're not trying to do anything other than get what your side of this is. Get your uh, version of events from what you saw. Now, if you receive something called a grand jury subpoena, and typically those will come from the United States District Court or from a circuit court here in Mississippi, if you receive one of those, there's a decent chance you are under investigation and you need to contact an attorney to kind of help you respond, number one, and number two, think about potential criminal liability and what you can do about that. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, it really then it depends. It, depends it does, and just like many things in the law, it depends. Well, yeah. You know, when, when am I constitutionally entitled to a lawyer? I know it's a little bit off the subject, but let's say I'm subpoenaed, and I'm not a criminal defendant. Criminal defendants are entitled to a lawyer. Um, and in fact, Jenny was a public defender for a while, and that you know that's one way that uh, we can make sure that we we meet that obligation. But what about non-criminal defendants? Are they entitled to a lawyer? Unfortunately, no. No. In a civil matter, you're not entitled to a lawyer, um, and unless you have, not under the Constitution anyway, you may have some contractual entitlement with your insurance company if you are a defendant. Um, but a witness, no, you're not entitled to a lawyer. Well, and the, the, the next couple of questions we were, we were going to deal with, Judge Clapp actually asked one of those. So let's, let's turn our attention now to grand juries if we can. You mentioned the grand jury subpoena. So, I mean, they're, they're juries and they're grand juries. What, what's the difference between the two of them? Sure. So the grand jury is our charging body for felony matters. Uh, it, at state court, uh, what happens is there is a jury summons that goes out. Same in federal court, actually. A jury summons will go out, and then you are to return to the courthouse. You are to appear at the courthouse. And the clerk will hand you a number and you will be seated according to that number. Um, it is a random selection. And really the first, in Hines County and in most counties, it's the first 21. Those people will become the grand jurors for that term of court. And what that means is <clears throat> you will go to a separate place. You will take a different oath. It's not what you see on TV. What you see on TV, the 12 that you think about, that is the pettit jury, um, and they actually make the guilt-innocence determination, or the guilt-not-guilt, guilt, to be specific about it, determination. 
at the grand jury level, what they do, they are in a separate room and they listen to cases presented by the prosecution, by the state or the federal government. Uh, And there's no defendant in the room. There's no defense attorney in the room. You're not going to hear arguments from the defense. You're just going to hear the side of the prosecution. And the job of the grand jury is to make a determination as to whether or not they believe there is probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that this particular individual committed that crime. And probable cause is a different standard than what we have at trial, which is the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the highest standard in the law. So when a grand jury is asked to make a decision whether or not John Smith you know, possessed cocaine on a certain date in a certain county. All they have are the testimony of a law enforcement officer and argument of a prosecutor. There's no defense lawyer in there to say, well, here's his alibi defense. They don't get any of that. And at the same time, that decision they make is not that the person did it. It's that the person they think probably did it. And that's all it is. So I would take this as an opportunity to do like I always do, caution people that indictments are merely accusations and that's it. They're not any sort of conclusive finding by anybody and it hasn't been tested through trial. Do they, their rules of evidence in a trial, do the same rules of evidence apply in in front of a grand jury? They do not. Um, And to give you an idea as to what a grand jury presentation looks like, um, a prosecutor will enter, he will bring in a law enforcement officer who may or may not have worked the case. This law enforcement officer could walk in and read a report written by another law enforcement officer and say, you know, that's hearsay, of course, because this officer didn't see anything. So he reads that report to the grand jury. And the prosecutor, if he likes, can say, this guy, he's been suspected of a whole string of similar events. And we think he's a bad guy. We've got to get him off the street. Please issue this indictment. Now, they can do that especially the state court, because there's no record of it that we're ever going to see. At trial, they can't do those things. The officer that investigates it will need to take the stand. The witnesses, a victim, an alleged victim, would need to take the stand and say, this happened to me and that guy did it. I swear on my oath that happened. And then a jury would get to make a decision about that particular incident and whether or not they believe beyond a reasonable doubt that evidence. But again, that's the pettit jury, the grand jury, It's just one-sided, it is slanted, and it is wholly without any controls uh, that we would have a trial like the rules of evidence. This is the part of the show I'm excited about. I think we've done a subpoena show before. I'll have the link to that podcast in the notes for this show's podcast. Ooh, but grand juries, they, they aren't, aren't they secret? I want to I hear more about this. And if you have any questions, if you've been a participant, or if you uh, have questions about it, we would love for you to email us your questions. I'm going to check our emails during the break. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking with guests, attorneys Matthew Eichelberger and Jenny Eichelberger about grand juries and subpoenas. 
Now, we've also mentioned that today is National Voter Registration Day. If you don't think you might be able to make it to the polls in Mississippi on November 8th, I've got a solution for you. I'll tell you what that is next. We do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, or you could find MPB Think Radio recordings from the website mpbonline.org slash radio. This morning, we're talking about grand juries and subpoenas with our guests, attorneys Matthew Eichelberger and Jenny Eichelberger. I did look it up, and in January 18th of this year of 2022, we talked about subpoenas. And so if you want to listen to that show, we'll have the link for that podcast on this show information. But now we're moving into grand juries for this broadcast, but I do want to hit home to you. Today is National Voter Registration Day. Now, Saturday, September 24th, absentee ballots must be available in the circuit clerk's office. An absentee ballot must be mailed to all voters who applied before absentee ballots are available. So if you already know that you qualify for an absentee ballot, and that's another topic for another show. Uh, request one this week to have it mailed to you. We're very excited to talk about grand juries today. Oh, wait. Now, so here is my question about the grand juries, at least how they are on L.A. Law or Law and Order. or Oh, gosh, L.A. Law. I just really dated myself on that one. Anyway, with, with grand juries, are they secret? Grand juries are secret. And that's one of the ways that they're different than a regular, um, a regular jury. Um, you don't know that they're being called. Um, the people that know they're being called are the people that are serving on that grand jury, as well as the prosecutors. And then um, any witnesses they may call to testify before the grand jury. But that is a major way that they are different. They're not public. Public can come in and witness the grand jury. Um, you're not entitled to a transcript after the grand jury. You really don't even know that they met or that they presented your case or any case um, to the grand jury. So that's one of the ways they are very different than a, than a regular jury, a petty jury. How long are they a secret? Did I, Am I getting anybody in trouble for asking them to call in to tell us about being on a grand jury? How, how long do you have to keep it a secret? You may, you may never know if someone was on a grand jury. I mean, I, I think... Um, you're not sworn to secrecy forever or anything, but, um, and, and sometimes if you get into a case, if, if someone has been indicted or you're representing, in our case, if we're representing an individual that has been indicted in a case, the grand jury returned an indictment and then the case moves forward. Um, at that point, sometimes in the discovery, the documents that um, the attorney receives and the criminal defendant receives, there is reference to grand jury um, um, subpoenas and um, documents maybe that were presented at, at the grand jury at that level. Well, I mean, to me, all right, so I, I asked through chat about a lawyer out in Texas that y'all know of and I know of, and because uh, I lived in Texas for a while, and she was great at picking juries, but what, one of the things that she did was she would always do a tri mock trial, pick a jury in the mock trial, kind of read the jury and see what was working and what wasn't. I almost feel like grand jurors are that way because a prosecutor gets an opportunity to kind of practice the case in front of not a jury, but a grand jury. I mean, how is it different, really? I mean, what, and, and do are there always grand juries? 
or do some cases go immediately to regular trial? So in felony matters, there are always grand juries. Um, that's the only way you can go forward. What I tend to tell clients is an indictment, and that's what is returned by the grand jury. The indictment, it sets the ball on the tee for uh, the, the game to begin. That is what starts the official felony prosecution of a person. There's the arrest, there's the charge, there's all that, but it's the indictment which opens the file in the clerk's office with respect to the resolution of the matter through the criminal justice system. And so like Matt said, there is always a grand jury on a felony case. Um, you will hear, you may hear the term build information or criminal information. There are um, some instances in which um, it's almost like an agreed indictment can be presented and that does not have a grand jury. It's a little confusing to talk about but you'll have, you could have an instance where someone has been indicted for a particular offense and it's proceeding um, in circuit court or um, and through an agreement from the district attorney's office and through the defense counsel, it's agreed that the person would plead to a different offense and there's not an indictment for that offense. So in that case, you would present what's referred to as either criminal information or bill of information to the circuit court. It's almost like an agreed indictment. That would be one instance in which a grand jury does not evaluate the case. And then misdemeanors, those do not have grand juries. They can't. There are instances in which a prosecutor decides to present it and it comes back with, with a misdemeanor, but um, it is not a requirement in a misdemeanor case in Mississippi for that to be presented to a grand jury. Dean, you mentioned uh, the lawyer out in Texas uh, and the idea of mock trials and, and focus groups to try to essentially try your case in advance and, and get familiar with the contours of it, have witnesses come in, test them out a little bit on the stand in front of people they don't know. Um, yes, that is an absolute advantage for the prosecution. Uh, and they do. They get to utilize it as a way to test their theories a bit, to gauge the reaction of the grand jurors. Um, and, and they can oftentimes try out a theory in a grand jury and then just not ask the grand jury to return in an indictment on that issue. They can go to the next grand jury and maybe say, well, that, that theory didn't work well, so let's try it a different way. And then ask for the return of an indictment. It is. It's like a focus group. They also have another advantage um, that, frankly, is a little bit unfair. A prosecutor can utilize a grand jury and is supposed to use, utilize the grand jury to investigate matters. So they will issue what's called a grand jury subpoena. And unlike the subpoenas that we issue uh, to be returnable to trial, they don't have to ask the court's permission for that. And it's secret as part of the grand jury proceeding. So only the party that receives that grand jury subpoena will know about it. Um, and it, it's a way for them to kind of issue and utilize the power and process of the court in a way that a criminal defendant can't. And uh, that's just a little bit unfair, speaking as a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, that being said, there's also, back to the issue of grand jury secrecy, in state court, we have our Mississippi Rules of Criminal Procedure, we enacted those in 2017. I'm, I'm proud of those because we didn't have them before. We just had a small section of the uniform rules of circuit and county court procedure that applied to 
criminal matters. Now we've got a big, robust package of criminal rules for state court in Mississippi, and it's Rule 13.5 that addresses grand jury secrecy. Uh, Prosecutors nor members of the grand jury can speak about what they've seen, who they have heard from. They can't talk about that at all for a period of six months um, or until a person is served with a copy of that indictment like Jenny talked about. So the idea is, is a good one. Uh, and it's to prevent people who are being investigated from the grand jury or by the grand jury from having their name kind of run through the mud uh, in advance of the issuance of an indictment. And also it helps keep it keeps people from running. Uh, if, if people knew that uh, they were being investigated by the grand jury, some of them may take off. Um, so there's there's some good public policy benefits to grand jury secrecy, even though it seems a little strange. I'm finding this so fascinating, and so are some of our callers. We've got a couple calls waiting. Let's go to Pontotoc County and speak with Bobby. Bobby, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today, when our guests are attorneys Matthew Eichelberger and Jenny Eichelberger. We're talking about grand juries and subpoenas. What's your question or comment? I had a grand grand jury to indict me on some evidence that wasn't true, and I don't know how that was brought about the criminal investigator in that thing, said that uh, I placed some powder in a litter I mailed a man, and he said that the uh, uh, postal inspector from Memphis come down and inspected that powder in that letter and said it was tricalcium and orthophosphate. Well, when it, that's when it went up before the grand jury and they indicted me on that. Well, later when they sent the uh, stuff to a lab, over at uh, Batesville, criminal now, but Batesville, it was supposed it showed up as uh, as uh, uh, sodium bicarbonate, which which is baking soda, and uh, that lab over there said that was baking soda. Well, when they uh, uh, investigated, they found out this man's place of business had 50 pound sacks of baking soda all over it, and so they didn't really have any tangible evidence. When it went up before Judge Pons, he said that he throwed the case out of court. He said they didn't have no tangible evidence, and that was only circumstantial evidence because somebody could have put that, that place could have put that powder in there from one of those sacks. And then they, uh, uh, when he, after he, Judge Pons throwed that out of court, they put an article out in the Pontotoc Progress that said that I was tried in Winston County on a on a, uh, a vacation term of court, and that uh, I pleaded guilty. And I will, I've never been in Winston County in my life, and I've never uh, uh, been in. Uh, uh, I've never been in. Uh, uh, let's see, a John, uh, a, a, a John, a Judge Pons threw that case out of court, and I. Uh, 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 they also said that. I pleaded guilty. Pontoc Progress said I was tried in Winston County Court, and I pleaded guilty. I've never been in Winston County, and I've never pleaded guilty, and I I'm, don't have any charges on my record. You can check my NCIC record over at Jackson, and you'll see I don't, I've don't. never been charged with a crime in my life, and I don't know how that got all messed up that way, but they, they doped that criminal investigator. He doped that grand jury into believing that lie. 
And I don't know how he got by with that. Well, Bobby, you've uh, got the same kind of uh, comment that our, our next listener has a question about. So I guess grand juries aren't as uh, as a unicorn as, as I think. I think, but being a lay person, I don't have a lot of exposure to the law, so I'm finding it interesting hearing different people's stories. So if you have a question or a comment, we'd love for you to participate in our show. We'll take your questions on our email address. It's legalterms at mpbonline.org. Our topic is grand juries and subpoenas with our guests, attorneys Matthew Eichelberger and Jenny Eichelberger. Everybody loves to celebrate holidays, and if you would like to participate with today's holiday, I'm going to tell you how you can next. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all of our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Now at 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. So in addition to today's topics, I've mentioned that today is National Voter Registration Day. And if you'd like to get a voter registration drive going, our Secretary of State's office has a toolkit for you. I'll have a link to that show to that information on today's show information. Remember, you have to be registered to vote by October 10th for the November 8th general election. We're talking today with guests, attorneys Matthew Eichelberger and Jenny Eichelberger about grand juries and subpoenas. We have another call to go to. We're going to Bay Springs and we're going to talk with Jerry. Jerry, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Yes, ma'am. I love your show and I try to catch it every Tuesday. Awesome. Uh, my, com- my comments and question are a little removed from Winston County. Uh, they're more along the lines of Florida and Washington and New York City. Um, but a lot of people uh, have gotten subpoenas lately and have ignored them. And uh, their defense is that these subpoenas are frivolous or baseless. And, of course, we know that we uh, don't legally have to tell the truth to anyone out in public life, although ethically we should, and certainly don't have to tell the truth to the media. But um, as far as these cases, and I think you know which ones I'm talking about, uh, how can uh, a grand jury produce, um, well, how can someone convince uh, a grand jury without basis that they need to issue a subpoena or an indictment? And uh, I'll hang up and listen to your call, to your answer. Thank Thank you, you, Jerry. So I think this goes back to the purpose of a grand jury and and how it works and how, frankly, it can be utilized by the prosecution in ways that we might not on the outside agree with. Um, There's an old saying amongst lawyers, and it's just kind of a truism in the law. You can indict a ham sandwich. Um, The grand jury only has the information that it is handed by the prosecution, the grand jury subpoenas that go out, the prosecution types those up and bring and gets them in. They're the ones who prepare the case. 
and put it before the grand jury. So uh, with respect to Bobby and that powder, ideally, the prosecution would have had that tested way before they ever issued an indictment, way before they presented it to the grand jury. Uh, with respect to these other things, uh, you know, we were talking about this before we went on air. We may all have our political desires in life, right? We may not like one party or the other. That's just the way we've become these days. Um, and it's hard as it is sometimes, and, and, you know, the shoe will be on the other foot at some point. Uh, it's, you have to understand that when an indictment comes down, that's just what the government says. That's all it is. It hasn't been tested in any way. We cannot put much stock in it at all because every grand jury operates under the same constraints. They only get to see the information that is presented to them. And that may not be the full information. It may not be correct. And that's what a trial is for. And I would caution everybody going forward from this point for the rest of time, whenever you see an indictment come down, just remember, well, that's what the government says. And that's not always true. All right. That's good Good words to live by. Let's take one final call and go to Mobile and speak with Kitty. Kitty, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. We are happy to hear what uh, you have to say. Okay. I w- agree with the attorney who was just speaking. I was on a j- grand jury several years ago in Mobile, and I learned at the time that you only hear one side of the case, whatever is is prosecution's case, that's what you hear. You do not hear any rebuttal whatsoever uh, to contradict you know, what they're saying. Uh, one of the issues that our grand jury had was that there was a man who was, tar- was charged with raping uh, his girlfriend's daughter, who at the time was 11 years old, and he gave her an STD, and she had talked to the police, and they knew it was him, but he, of course, he had left the city, and the prosecution did not want to issue, uh, did not want to sit, you know, try to find him and arrest him. And they just didn't want to spend the money on it. And the grand jury was just angry about that because they felt this man should be prosecuted. And it was no excuse just because he had left the city and it was going to cost a little more money. He should be found and be, you know, punished for what he did. So, yes, uh, a grand jury does not really investigate. They just see everything the prosecution says. And and when we visited the jail, which you said the grand jury is supposed to try, you know, to see if the jail is, you know, doing what it's supposed to do. And you just kind of walk through and leave, and that's it. So you really don't know if they're being fed correctly uh, or being treated correctly. So anyway, that was my experience with a grand jury. Kitty, I'm so glad that you called in to to share that with our, our, our statewide audience. It's very interesting to hear different people's um, situations and their experiences. Thank you so much for, for contributing it. Um, I appreciate Ma- her backing me up there. Yeah, Matt and Jenny, we just have about uh, two minutes uh, left. Um, I-, I love the comment that you made that everyone needs to take forward that just because someone was indicted, that's just a prosecutor's belief or thought on the subject. It's, it's not a trial. That's right. That's right. And it's not evidence that they've done anything wrong. Um, 
I want to touch on one other thing Kitty talked about, and that's the inspection of jails. Uh, That is a very, very important thing that grand juries do. They're supposed to do anyway. Um, Here in Hines County, back seven or eight years ago, uh, our, our grand jury toured the jail and they put together a report that in a lot of ways led to this federal uh, investigation of the jail and what is now a federal takeover of the Hines County Jail. Uh, and somebody, speaking as somebody who has sued Hines County over that jail several times and has witnessed some horrible things myself down there, uh, it was time and that grand jury served its function very, very well by doing that. Well, that's something I didn't even know. Does that happen very often or frequently or to every jail at some point? Uh, yes, yes. Every county jail in this state is to be inspected by the grand jury every time they're in panel. They're supposed to go down there. They also get to look at the books of the county. Um, so I'm not so sure how well that's presented to them. But um, there's a lot that they do outside of just investigating crimes and issuing indictments. But uh, inspections of our jails in this state is really, really important one. What a fantastic show. Jenny, I'm sorry I got to cut you off. We're we're done. I'm so excited. This has been such an interesting show. I'm going to, well, I always tell everybody to listen, but I hope uh, everybody who's listening will tell everybody to listen because I think we've learned quite a lot. Thank you, my, Matthew Eichelberger and Jenny Eichelberger. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. Appreciate you, Liz. Oh, Thanks, and I, I appreciate uh, Kevin Farrell and Jay White uh, for helping engineer. And our intern, Charles Arnold, was our phone screener. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. But we hope you join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.